welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. A, an aspect of lust that, when you look it up in the dictionary, and um, Roy talks about it frequently, about sexual fantasies. What is a sexual fantasy? This is what I think it is. I think it's a motion picture that happens to have sexual content in it. Okay? It's a motion picture in my head. You know, we think in pictures. This is a moving picture in my head. What is a motion picture? What really is a moving picture? Motion picture. It's one still frame, slide, repeated, repeated, and then it's moving. When movies first came out, how did they do it? A hundred years ago or so? They... When we were kids, we had these little pads, and they had a little picture, and it just changed a little, and you flipped it. Anyone know, just old guys here know about it? And it made it move. So it's really a still photograph that keeps repeating, moving a little bit, and whambo. Okay? It becomes a motion picture. Once it's a motion picture... God himself will have trouble stopping it. Miracles could happen. You know, in AA they say, God is so powerful, so omniscient, so omnipotent, that if a recovering alcoholic picks an open bottle up right near his lips... God is so powerful, he can knock that bottle out of his hands. But statistically, he doesn't do that. (laughs) Okay? So, once that motion picture starts, you've had it. What's an example of that? Being the crude person I am, that recovery has not stopped... It's if I have to take a leak, urinate, it is easier to hold it in than to stop it midstream. Once it's started, a physiological experience has happened where the body has it where you can't Even stop it when you try this. It hurts too much. Okay? That's what happens with fantasies. Once they get in, okay, you've had it. 
And by the way, this goes back to Alan's question that we really didn't talk about. Is he sober? Okay. But is he living in sexual fantasies about men? If he's living in sexual fantasies about men, that's a whole different story. Because he's going about his sobriety as if it's only acting out when he might be staying drunk on sexual fantasies. Okay, I want not to pick you out, but I'm picking you out for this. Yeah. <laughs> so for Alan to really get comfort, for me to have comfort, for you to have comfort, how do we not live in a sexual fantasy? Because it's the fantasy that is going to produce the phenomenon of craving. Once the phenomenon of craving begins, a physiological reaction has happened that is all but impossible to put the plug back in the jug. So what do we do? This I said the first thought is my sponsor would say the first thought is on God and the second thought is on me. What do I mean by that? The first frame of that picture is on God. The what I do with that first frame is on me. Am I willing to catch that first frame and use a tool? Or am I just going to say, oh, what could a little fantasy hurt? It's only a little fantasy. How could it be a problem? Now, be careful that you're not hearing me say fantasies are evil. I'm saying I'm allergic to fantasies. I can't fantasize successfully. Because it is going to start a chain reaction in my body. I am so ill that when I am intimate with my wife, I do not even let a replayment of it the next day in my head. Because that would be just my disease trying to fool me into another form of a sexual fantasy. So this even applies to my own wife. I am only to think anything sexual about are we, if we're in bed and even there, I do not permit sexual fantasies. I'm going to tell you some tools that I use because I cannot have sexual fantasies there. By the way, Alan said something that I truly don't agree with. <laughs> About, he described sexual intercourse in this most romantic, transcendental, sophisticated, romance, beauty. Sometimes it's just having sex. What can I tell you? 
Sometimes that's what it is. I'm an animal. Now, I have a choice as an animal to eat, or I could do gluttony. I have a choice with sex to make it into some all kinds of thing, or I could say this is what it is, and I happen to bring God into the equation. So God is with me during my intimacy. And he's with me right beforehand. I get on my knees beforehand. And I give this sex act to God. I do the third step. Because my disease wants to say to me, even though you had intercourse with your wife before you came in, I figured out about 8,000 times. Every time I did it, I said, the next time it won't work. I'm not going to be able to do it the next time. I don't know why my mind worked that way. It was like, this is it. It's not going to work the next time. And then it works, and then the next time it's not going to work. So what did I have to do to make sure it's always going to work? I had to have sexual fantasies. To make sure, I guarantee it's going to work. Even though rabbits do it. I mean, what's the big deal? Rabbits do this stuff. (laughs) The body just does it. That's how we're made. And by the way, rabbits don't take too long to do it either. (laughs) And most sex addicts, God, they are so into the pornography where they're not realizing they're using different men a lot of times and they're expecting to have their orgasm go for hours. One guy was saying, man, one guy said, oh, it. I did it like only took 10 seconds. I'm upset over it. He said, you mean you were able to do it for 10 seconds? (laughs) We have all these things we say. But I give it to God. And because I will not have a sexual fantasy during my relationship to my wife. And... There's a man, uh, Mike C., from Chicago, maybe next time, if you ever want to get an outside speaker. He's just a phenomenal speaker. And he came in very young in this program. He has about 26 years now. And he once said at a meeting, my wife and I have an agreement that if I start having a sexual fantasy while I'm with her, I will say to her, I have to stop now. Sexual fantasies are a no-no in my marital bed. And I won't go into all this stuff and how I bring God in. My sponsor helped me with a lot of this stuff many years ago. And I I bring his energy into the room. Uh, And I use prayer. And it is a, a... a nice experience. But sometimes it's just sex. What can I tell you? Uh, by the way, one of the ways I know if I'm in the wrong place is I tend to dissect it afterwards. 
Did it last long enough? Was I good enough? Was it this? Was it that? I automatically know that that's a form of a withdrawal. And I say, I'm not going there today. It's also a form of replaying it that I'm not allowed to replay for my own comfort. This program, like I said yesterday, is not about sex or lust. It's about comfort. If we don't learn how to be comfortable, we have no choice than to go back to our old ways of using lust and sex. So what are tools? One tool in particular is to catch that first frame, to learn that first frame of the motion picture. The first thing that always shows up. And it takes a while to start figuring it out. Okay? I have a few things I do with that first frame. Number one, at the first frame, I say, God, whatever it is I'm looking for in that picture, may I find in you. God, whatever it is I'm looking for in those women's breasts, in that photograph, may I find in you. Whatever it is I'm looking for in that man's erection, may I find in you. Just at that moment. For years, I wore a rubber band. And the moment that first picture came in, I flipped the rubber band. My brain, unless you're a masochist, I will recommend that if you're a masochist and like to be hurt. <laughs> but it's unbelievable. The brain hates that sensation of the flip on the wrist. It hates it. And it will stop giving it to you. That thought. If you flip that rubber band and in our, we have like a clubhouse in Nashville and uh, a church gave us a portable building for since, uh, I guess, 1990, and we have three meetings alone in that meeting. And on the wall, we have a bag of rubber bands. You know? And it was for things. By the way, I just flashed visualization of what sometimes I used to use rubber bands for, for sexual reasons. And I have to be very clear that anything that I use positively, I could also use in my addiction. Okay? And I flipped the rubber band. Okay? Disease doesn't like that. I also share explicitly with someone on the phone. And someone was asking me, should we really be explicit in the meetings? You don't have to be that explicit in meetings if you're doing it immediately with your sponsor or someone on the phone. I call my own sponsees up to cast things out. The last thing I want is for them. No, it's probably the first thing I want of my disease for them to think I'm perfect. But the last thing I need for my disease is for me to play that game. And so I call my sponsees up and I cast stuff up. Did it last night? I was sharing with people. I was watching TV in the hotel room and 
watching an Adam Sandler movie. It was a football movie. All of a sudden, he, it was, he had an erection in his underwear or something. I mean, I, it, I feel it's abusive now in my, my life. Anything like that feels abusive. And I turned it off. You know, I looked away, turned it off. But I photographed it in that millisecond. I did not take even a second look. And it was photographed in my mind just by accidentally seeing it. Whether it's pictures going into the mall or one of those stores where you see a guy's chest and I walk by with my eyes down, that's not good for me. Or the mannequins. I saw breasts on a mannequins today. I photographed it even though I didn't take a second look. I have this diseased brain. It does stuff like that. And I immediately called a sponsor of mine. This my sponsor was on vacation and I called and um, cast it out. And then he cast out something that was, he had, Roy calls this casting out. Another form, he just casts it to God, God, I cast it out to you. Uh, for me, I don't do that. This, for me, from my religious background, it seems for me a little too religious for me. So I don't use that term when I talk to God, but it's a wonderful term if it fits your your need. By the way, these things I'm telling you about are not Harvey Originals, except for rubber bands, which I learned from other people. All this is uh, hidden. You want to keep something from a sexaholic? Put it in the essay book. <laughs> There's a chapter here that I wish they would have put in the beginning when they put all these loose pieces together. But they didn't. They put it way in the back. And it's called How I Overcame My Obsession with Lust. And those tools are in there. They're just all in there. So catching that first photograph before it's a motion picture. Um, if you guys want to keep fantasizing... Stop fooling yourself that this program's going to work. No one's going to kick you out. But stop fooling yourself. If you think you're going to stay not drunk in one form or the other and try to control and enjoy lust, I wish you well, but it doesn't work. It will show up in one form or the other. And face it. Face you don't want to be members. You just want to stop sexually acting out so you won't get into trouble with your wife or with your work. But you don't really want to get sober. You don't want to even acknowledge you're powerless over lust. Alan's issue isn't about should it be a guy or a gal or a marriage or not a marriage or what. Alan's issue is going to be what all your issues are. He's still sexually fantasizing and he's going to stay uncomfortable. 
And if you think you're not getting uncomfortable, it's only because you're drunk and high on this sexual fantasy. And then when it wears down, you're going to go into shame. That's, that's a cycle. And then when you go into shame, only one thing will help, another sexual fantasy. And then the cycle continues and continues until you relapse. Some people don't actually relapse in, in physical ways, but, you know, this is a disease, a non-physical disease. <laughs> In a way, for our, it affects our inner comfort. You know. So I wish you guys well, but it, I don't advise it. And yeah, I'm pretty tough about this. If I knew that guy was continuing to fantasize, uh, I just wouldn't have continued sponsoring them because I'd just be fooling myself um, I think you're getting some impression that my rigidity my strictness about this with my own self is not about having a crazy thought. It's about the catering and wanting a motion picture. It's not about having some crazy thought. If the first step is true, which I believe it's true, and the second step, it says we're restored to sanity. If we're restored to sanity, it must mean in the first step the word unmanageable is really the word insane. And our lives become insane. We're restored to sanity. Bill W. kind of played with that word back in the 30s. That's how you were merited as a good writer or not. How much you could say the same with different words. So that's why we have character defects and shortcomings. You know, uh, selfishness, self-delusion, self-seeking, self-centered. You know, he has said self in so many different ways. That's the height of his um, uh, writing skills that was measured back then. So here we have this this reality that we're going to have aberrant thoughts. What do I do with them? For my comfort is not related, or my discomfort to having an aberrant thought. My discomfort is related to what I do with that aberrant thought, and that gets us to the tool that is the hardest one of all there are many tools we could use but the hardest one is honesty rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this 
simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. If you want to keep lusting, at least be honest with you and your sponsor. As soon as we acknowledge it, we have a chance of being willing to let it go. This is not that we're bad. It's this is what we still want to do. I still want to eat honeydew, even though it might give me the run sometimes. What can I tell you? <laughs> it's what I want to do. Doesn't make me bad. But it doesn't work for recovery in SA. Now, other S fellowships, if you like, you know, why feel embarrassed? You're not you're having relapses or what? You could have other fellowships and some of your bottom line might not be. Some of your circles might not be fantasy. And then you can fantasize all you want if it works. But I don't see it working real well here. We do not have good batting average for this fellowship. And why? Why wouldn't this work? This divine program. It doesn't work because it's simple. People aren't ready to stop lusting. The main criteria. And they're reluctant to even say it to themselves. Now, if someone said to me, Harvey, I'm not ready to stop lusting. A sponsee of mine. Then I'd ask him to do some. I'd compliment him for his honesty. And I'd say, hey, let's do some inventory work on this and see where it takes us. And then we'd work on it. And then at some point, I'd have to say, hey, are you ready yet? And if they said no, then I'd have to say, well, then why do you want to put yourself through all this? Go for it. Try it some more. Until you're convinced. We are the most pampered fellowship. God, we treat each other like these fragile little children you better not say too much you might hurt someone's feelings they might never come back again oh don't you know don't say that don't say this man in aa they'll tell you take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth <laughs> can you imagine someone saying that at an essay meeting Oh, you've shamed me and you've hurt me. And, you, you know, what's your problem that you'd say that to me? And, you know, heck. Once this guy I've sponsored for years and did all right, but he, he called me once and he said, Oh, I just got to stop at this telephone booth to, we still had telephone booths back that time, to make a, I got to look up in the telephone book this woman I used to have an affair with and I got to do it. 
and then call her and I said, stay where you are. I'll come over with a whole bag of quarters so you could call her as many times as you want. And then he laughs. And the magic, the spell was over. I have one sponsee. I mean, he's phenomenal. He has a heck of a wonderful program. And he calls me, oh, I'm such a bad sponsor and I'm a bad sponsee and I don't do this right. I don't do that right. And I'll say to him, you know, I'm glad you're admitting it. You're probably the worst sponsee I've ever had. (laughs) I can't tell you what a lousy program you work. And he'll start laughing. And I'll start laughing, and it's over. Sponsored a guy from another country. Still do. And he called me the other day, and oh, God. This self into self into self. I mean, self, self, self. And sometimes he says, you and my wife don't want to hear that. And I say, you're right. (laughs) And finally, I said to him, in all the years I have spoken to you, have you ever once when you called me said, Harvey, how are you doing? One time. And there was dead silence. And now you could say, Harvey, you shamed that guy. (gasps) How could you have done that? And this morning he calls me. Wasn't sure if he'd ever call back, but he called me. And uh, from another uh, in Europe. And the first thing he said is, Harvey, how are you doing? And I said, thank you for asking me. I'm doing fine. Sometimes the honesty needs to go both ways. Us finding it and the sponsor finding it. And the sponsor could get the same way with the sponsee that he gets with his wife. Instead with his wife saying yes when you mean no, this you're afraid you won't get sex with her. With a sponsee, you could say yes when you mean no, because you're afraid he won't like you. Or he'll reject you and go to another sponsor. Many aspects of this that Roy talks about in Lust, about even non-sexual relationships. He lists it. He lists it especially, and if you all don't read that book... I highly recommend it, uh, Recovery Continues, that Roy wrote. And he has this wonderful hidden chapter called Obstacles to Recovery. And what are some of the obstacles to recovery? Hanging on to one or more forms of overt sexual expression. Two, no progressive victory over lust. Three, resorting to other addictions. Four, lack of honesty about self. Five, incomplete surrender. Six, emotional dependency in the marriage. I hear grunts and groans. Can you pick that up on the tape? You think it hurt? 
Look at this one. Emotional dependency in non-sexual relations. Ships. And then he has a few more. It's amazing what's in this book, these books. This man was so inspired. You know, I, when I first got sober and I, uh, you know, would have to call him, I would call him and there were so few of us. Uh, this meeting has many more people or as many probably as my first international conference. You know. And, you know, he would be real blunt about getting honest with yourself. You know, telling yourself your own truths. If you're not ready, you're not ready. Go out and try it some more until you prove you're ready. If you make it back, I wish you well. Go and relapse for me. Show me. There's a guy in AA. Guy, you know, I say at meetings when people come in with relapsing, I say, you know, relapsing is not a prerequisite for recovery. That's what my sponsor would say to us all the time. If you start getting enough relapsing in a room and people are going to begin to think relapsing is the way you get recovery. Relapsing is the way you relapse. And many people don't come back. I'm telling you that. Our first year, I kept track, we had 120 people, and there were two of us left after the first year. You come to some meetings of yours next year, it will be almost an entirely different faces. And it happens in Nashville, too. My AA sponsor would say, if all the people who... Would attend AA would keep coming back. There wouldn't be enough church space in the country for them for meetings. And so you want to go try it some more. Go try some more. Because there's this guy in AA. Whenever a guy comes back from a relapse, he says, "Oh, was it better this time? Was it better?" And the guy will sheepishly say no. And the guy will say, oh, I'm waiting for the one guy who says it will be better. And maybe then I'll consider it. Three times it says about being honest with ourselves. And I think the first paragraph alone. If you have decided you want what we have, why the heck would you want what someone has who's chronically relapsing, coming in, having more and more troubles, losing more and more, and are willing to go to any length? 
Do you know what that meant for me because of my religious beliefs? I was taught from the time I was a child, if you got on your knees ever, that was idolatry. That's how you, you did idol worshiping. And I was severely spanked and hit and punished. And when I was told I had to get on my knees for the third step, I said, hell no. And then one day I said, Harvey, you're so full of crap. You used to get on your knees to do sex acts. <laughs> So you're not going to get on your knees to pray? Cut it out. I had to be willing to go to any length. And then lo and behold, once I did it, I found out it was perfectly fine in my religion. It's all through the prayers. We bend our knees and bow our heads. We do this or all kinds of stuff. It was the God of my mother's understanding. I had to let go totally of the God of my mother's understanding and get a new God of my understanding. And darn it, if that other God doesn't keep popping up, it keeps popping up. The God who's waiting to punish me for almost anything. And today I have this different God that I borrowed in AA. This guy said, he, he was in jail after jail and mental hospital after mental hospital. And he was in one of these, um, you know, where chains and motorcycles. And he said one day, God watched me do every one of those life, low life things I did. And loved me so much, he brought me to AA. My God watched me in those porno booths day after day. Watched me do every one of those low life things I did. And he loved me so much, he brought me to SA. That's the God I have today. The God I have today loves me and there is nothing I can do about it. My God today will love me if I lust today. He'll love me if I act out today. The problem is I'm not going to love him. I'm not going to love anyone. I'm going to be so busy in my addiction. Who cares about anything? How can I have a God conscience if I'm so ego-centered? Have you ever thought what it meant in the AA book? And by the way, I keep talking about the AA book. Roy, time and again, might be two or three times, he says that the AA book is the basic text or alludes to it. If you think you could get this program from the essay book, you're mistaken. 
The essay book is a supplement assuming you know the A, the first 164 pages of the AA book. You're living a dream if you think you could get it. So God's going to love me and there's nothing I could do about it. And there's a statement in the AA book that says God is everything or he's nothing. Page 54, I think. By the way, I still lie, so check out everything I say to you. <laughs> I just make it up as I go along, so be sure you check the, this stuff. But page 54, I think, it says, God is everything or he's nothing. What does that mean? It means he's everything. He's everywhere. There's nowhere he's not. He's all. Whenever my ego comes in, it takes space. And the minute my ego comes in, E-G-O, easing God out, it takes some space, which means he's been pushed, which means he's not everywhere or everything. Therefore, the minute my ego comes in, I'm back to we agnostics. That God really is nothing. This stuff sounds pretty good for a drunk, doesn't it? <laughs> By the way, you think I could say this stuff? You think it's at all possible for me to share this stuff? If it's not being done through me? No way. I get calls. They brought me to Israel for three weeks last summer. They, we got in, they got us an apartment. I did like 32 hours of talks and I, to all these extremely religious people. And I get calls. I say things from the Bible. I don't even know where the heck I get it. Christians from all over call me. I'm quoting the New Testament. I don't know where the heck I even heard it since I've been Jew. I don't read the New Testament very much. <laughs> One day, I get a call from this Muslim guy in England. And he says, thank you so much. Thank you for talking about Allah. I said, talking about Allah? You know, when did I ever... Use that term. It's not a usual term I use. And then I realized what my sponsor once told me. He said, not only do we pray for God to talk through us, well, he talked through us, he has someone hear what he needs to hear, what you say, whether you've said it or not. <laughs> So what it was, I remember the story. This, it's on some tape, I think, that I was sponsoring this 
this uh, Christian young man and his father was a minister. And we were working the steps and he found a God of his understanding. And when he called me to tell me this, he was so angry at his father and he wanted no part of Christianity. And when he called me and he said it, I said, now remember, just because you're angry at your father and he's a minister does not mean you should exclude Jesus Christ as your personal savior. And I get off the phone. I say, where the hell did that come from? (laughs) Where did that come from? And a moment later, I was jogging across this viaduct. And I'll never forget this moment in my life. I said, my God, my Catholic sponsor got me back to my religious practices. And here I am, a Jew, getting some Christian guy to accept Jesus as his personal Savior. (laughs) My God, God must be bigger than religion. And I felt his awesomeness. I felt how big this God is. That I don't have to do this alone ever again. I could do it through him working, through you helping me, through him helping me, through the steps, God working through the steps to help me. By the way, this program is based on three legs of a surveyor's tripod. You could take it anywhere, hills, flat areas. Those legs, as long as they're sturdy will go anywhere. But let one of those legs go down and the whole thing flips over. And those legs for us is God as we understand them. The steps of the program and the fellowship which is broken down into meetings and sponsorship. And let one of those legs get weak. The whole thing goes over. So I could talk all this God stuff all I want and get real super religious and relapse. This I'll stop doing steps. I'll stop coming to meetings. Or I could start getting all this stuff with steps and meetings and not think I need God. The whole thing could go down. I need all three legs simultaneously. For this program to work. How did I ever get on this subject about God? We were talking about the how it works. How much time do I have for this meeting? Well. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, it's 530. Say no more. Okay. Yes. Okay, I'll start winding down. No. All right. Okay, so let's kind of finish this up and then get some questions. At, then you, if you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it. Oh, I forgot to tell you that Israeli story, by the way. 
I'm in my apartment with my wife, and it's across from the president of Israel's house. And the soldiers are going back and forth, and this guy, this Muslim guy from Iran keeps calling me in Israel. And every night I'm talking to an Iranian in Israel. I mean, in Israel. <laughs> a guy who's in a country that they keep saying we're going to destroy Israel. And I kept seeing the soldiers rush into my apartment and say, why are you talking through Skype to this Iranian? Are you a spy? And I pictured myself saying, no, we're just talking about masturbation. <laughs> and pornography. <laughs> like they'd really believe it, right? And, uh, but it worked out. Nobody arrested me. And uh, I, I have a couple of guys from Iran call. I have people... You know, I'll get calls from China. I'll get calls from Greece. It's just amazing that we all have this common denominator that transcends our political beliefs, our religious beliefs, you know, our cultural beliefs. That is true anonymity. Anonymity isn't about giving our name out except on the level of press radio on television. Anonymity is the spiritual foundation of our fellowship. It means we have no men, we have no women, we have no Jews, we have no Christians, we have no blacks, we have no whites. We just got drunks. Just other bozos on the bus like me who cannot do this alone. That's our spiritual foundation. At some of these we balked. We thought we could find an easier, softer way. Yeah, I'll just fantasize a little. She was really a very attractive woman. And it's okay. And as I was starting to talk about my insanity, that I've been saying, a woman, what are some of the issues of insanity? It's hallucinations and delusions, visual and auditory hallucinations, part of psychosis. Well, a woman smiles at me, and I get a visual hallucination. I hear her saying, let's have sex together. I will actually hear that. A woman will be dressed or a man, and I will see them naked. That's a visual hallucination. I'm insane. Only a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. And am I glad to know I'm insane and not bad. I couldn't bear that being so bad, doing those secret lives, all that stuff. Couldn't bear it. 
but I can bear knowing I'm insane and there's medication for me today, one day at a time. With, with all the earnestness of, at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our own ideas and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. Remember that we deal with sexaholism, cunning, baffling, and powerful. Let me tell you about how cunning it is. I had sex with a lot of men. My disease will see this beautiful woman and say, hey, she might want sex with you. That's okay. That's more normal. It's not a man. And I'll have to say to my disease, you're not going to get me there. You're, you're teasing. You're playing with me again. You're just like a jello mold. You push it on one side, it moves to the other side. It will do anything to pull me in. Because Roy says, lust is not physical. It's not physical. It is a spiritual attitudinal issue. And it has no boundaries since it's physical. And that's why so many guys in the program, if their disease keeps progressing, will do gender crossing. Or start um, cross-dressing or whatever it is. We have no, it's not a physical issue. It, It has no boundaries. Without help, it is too much for us. But there is one. One. It doesn't say anything about one. One meaning unity. Everything. Everything. And that one is God. May you find him now. Half measures avail us what? You mean it doesn't say it gives us a half? Wouldn't you think half measures would give us a half? It gives us nothing. So when we start doing sexual fantasies, when we start lusting, when we start getting so powerless over these dependency relationships, that's half measures. And we're going to end up getting nothing. We stood at the turning point. Does anyone know what a turning point is? Let me show you what a turning point is. A turning point is a point. Okay? Now watch what happens. I'm going to go this way, okay? Now watch what happens if I just go... uh, imperceivable, almost like milliliter away, where you can't even see it, okay? It ends up, if it's a straight line, in an entirely different place. So at that spot, which is every moment for me, of my day, 
do I let an aberrant thought go into a motion picture, or do I pick up the tools, the phone, the rubber band, the uh, prayers, so that I don't end up there instead of here, at that turning point. And I choose to stand at that turning point and use those tools today. We we asked his protection and care with complete abandon. Now, don't go out of here thinking, man, what an order I can't go through with this. <laughs> You're talking about a guy who's been doing this for 27 years. Many of you, as my sponsor would call me for years and years, are mewling, puking infants. You're new kids on the block. And let me tell you, my disease is living and active. I know it from my dreams. It's just waiting to come out. I might be better with my lust. But three years ago, I cursed out a daughter-in-law of mine. My rage was still there. You know, I have all kinds of character defects that want to pop its head out. Working with this guy up north on his arrogance and realized how arrogant I was the past two weeks. I had to start making phone calls. started realizing how dishonest I am with certain sponsees or maybe all sponsees when I start getting angry and I call it passion or enthusiasm and it's really anger. And boy, if I don't keep going, you don't stay in the same place in this program without progressive victory over lust. You go backwards. True sobriety is progressive victory over lust. And we can't ever do it perfectly. Every now and then, I'll get into this thing. We'll be driving. I work out and I'm driving to the Y. And um, I'll all of a sudden think... Gee, my wife could die. And the next thought will be, who would I marry? And the next thought is some woman's face shows up. And then the next thought I'd say, oh, I'm in SA, so I can't have sex with her. Until we're married, and the next thought, picture. This is a millisecond, is a vagina or something. And then I'll say, Harvey, you weren't aware of it, but if you keep this going now that you're aware of it, that's going to be, or that's a sexual fantasy, and you're going to be in lust. Cut this crap out right now. Use your tools. I'll call someone, I'll share it, whatever. 
So it takes a while to even be aware that you're having fantasy. But the more and more you guys talk to each other about it, the more it comes out in the rooms, you have a real good chance to break through. No reason not to. Concerning what the program's really about, it does not say we are powerless over sexually acting out. It says we are powerless over lust and our lives become unmanageable. Okay, I'm going to have some questions or some responses. We have 15 minutes. You want to come to the microphone? Hey, John. Uh, um, the definition of sexaholism we've decided is a disease. And it strikes me that as we look at ourselves and we relate to other people, that it is a disease that every single person has, every man has. Because there are so many environmental factors that it is very hard for any one of us to walk through life without having observations, temptations, lusty thoughts, uh, all of the things that we would like to call trash, but they're there. So it leads me to think that individually we're, depends on where we are on a step from uh, recovery to along the way towards recovery, hopefully. Or at the other extreme, there are people who <coughs> have no interest in the whole damn program, no interest in recovery, and are living in the world of being a sexaholic. And I find it's very difficult to keep myself on a path of not being enticed by the intrigue of sexual acting out in one form or another. And I think it all revolves around a different mindset. It's surrendering for a spiritual change in one's life. I think that's what it's all about. And yet, I haven't been able to do it 100%. Well, first we got to get you fixed up with your basic assumption. That's not what the big book says, what your basic assumption is saying, that it matter of fact is opposite. We are like men who have lost their legs. They never grow new ones. We are not like other men. That must be bashed out of our minds. We are not like other men. Other men can lust successfully. 
occasionally. They could masturbate occasionally. They could do all kinds of things. They don't end up on a TV on every station in the country about sending pictures of their genitalia to women they hardly know. But, but that is, in fact, my point, that there are gradations from people who... Are... So you don't think he's a sex addict? Possibly. No, okay. But most men don't necessarily do that, John. I fully understand that. And I agree with that. But that is, in fact, my point, that people move from being... Uh, recovered and spiritually uh, in tune with God who leads their way through life. At the other extreme, there are people who don't want to hear about God, have no place for it in their life, and have no spiritual content in their own life determination, so to speak. It looks like only a certain percent of the population are truly genetic addicts. They had this great study of guys in Vietnam who were massively using heroin. And they were sure when the Vietnam War was over and they came back, there would be a massive epidemic of heroin use. And it never happened. And they figured out that 10% of those heroin users continued to use heroin back in the States. This happens to be a very similar number to the amount of alcoholics in the country. In other words, you could be in a fraternity house and for four years you will be drinking and it will be indistinguishable from other alcoholics. From alcoholics. You'll get blackouts, you'll get all kinds of problems. But statistically, only 10 to 12 percent of those people, when they leave college, continue to drink alcoholically. So therefore, whether this is true or not, the way I need to stay sober is to make sure I don't get too sophisticated in my brain about any of this and just say, I was born this way. This is how I'm made. There are tools of spiritual tools that will help me today. Other people who don't have this genetic illness that I have, they might not need it. Many people in this program who relapse don't go jumping off bridges. I see a lot of guys in Nashville, it's a small town, I see them over the years, they've been to SA, they leave, they, they're still okay in AA, I see them in AA all the time. What happens? They were sexual abusers, they were not necessarily sexual addicts. In AA, they have a term that makes me uncomfortable, but I'm understanding it more and more. They call it a real alcoholic. A real alcoholic. There are guys in this program who will be able to relapse, stop coming for a while, come back. They'll be doing the same stuff. Well, I wish them well. Other people will say, oh, they did it successfully. 
I maybe could do it. They might be of that percent that they do the same thing and their life, like my first sponsor, they end up in jail for life. So I'm not willing to play that one. That's another reason I will not sponsor people who continue to relapse. Because my mind, and I don't hang around people who continue to relapse. The reason is my brain says, gee, they're getting away with it. Maybe you could get away with it. And I can't do that. I don't have that leeway. I know my truth. I'm not one of those people. And so it's been very, very important for me to not think about this stuff too much. It's kind of almost robotic. <laughs> My sponsor taught me, Harvey, maybe someday your intelligence will catch up to your education. <laughs> because I have every kind of degree you could think of. And it didn't stop me from keep giving venereal diseases to my wife. My best thinking. So whenever I'd call him, and one day I'd call him and said, oh, I was thinking about how my mother abused me and this and that. And he said, well, that's your first problem, Harvey. You're thinking again. <laughs> well, I'd agree with that comment in the sense that I think people who think too much and are intellectual too much about it have remove themselves from the emotional in-depth searching. Right. Okay, they're giving me signals, John. Thank you. We have one more question, and then we'll end. I'm Alan. I'm a psychoholic. Hey, Alan. Uh, my question is in reference to the, sec the explicit sharing. Um, when Josh was giving his story, and he told me explicit, it excited me. Right. And I was like, all right, let me go, you know, and uh, share a few uh, stories like right after, with, you know, that I've been experiencing in my head to try and cut them off. So I shared, and it just excited me again. And someone, you know, because you said share explicit, he shared his explicit story. And I got excited again, and I was like, you know, I'm thinking maybe that doesn't work for me, or do I just need to keep on trying this, and eventually I'm going to get over it? Or what's your what's your What do you think? I think you're going to say you're going to recommend to keep trying it and it'll get eventually when I'm right with God, it'll that'll pass. Yeah, that's not what I'm going to say. OK. <laughs> I was doing my first step on incest I had with a male cousin of mine. And every time I wrote it, started writing it, I'd get aroused. And I stopped writing it. Period. When it's time, it will work out. This is not something you force. And until you get more comfortable, the moment that feeling, and let's talk about the feeling of excitement, meaning arousal or potential erections. It's only energy that gets stuck in your pelvis. It's just energy. So when you feel it happening, the worst thing you could do is say, no, I better not get an erection. I better not let this happen. You merely say it's energy, and you picture your heart, and you picture taking that energy up to your heart and letting it flow out or down your legs into the ground. I could not meditate 
my first few years without getting aroused. And so I had to learn tools to pass that energy down. Uh, Erections are dangerous in this program. Erections are for two things. They're to take a leak with in the middle of the night, if you wake up with one. And the other thing is to have intercourse with your wife. Other than that, erections are non-usable issues. What do you need an erection for? And so if you're having erections, now some the young guys in this program are going to have erections throughout the day. That's what young guys do with their testosterone like it is. I take extra testosterone. These young guys before 27 or whatever, they're still having their peak testosterone. It's going to happen, but they're going to need to say to themselves, why do I really need to nurse this? I need to let that energy flow. It's okay. It's not bad, but it's, it doesn't need to be there right now. It could be used for other purposes. So getting that to yours, if something is being too arousing, then you know it's not for you. And you could always try it at some other time. Okay? And, um, and it does get easier. Uh, you know, oh, I forgot to say when people share explicit with me, I ask them to, to warn me they're sharing explicitly. And then I say, God, may I hear this with your ears. God, may I hear this with your ears. So there are all kinds of tools I use. When someone figures out a way to de-shame it and get rid of it without sharing it to someone explicitly, let me know I'm more than willing to grow on this subject. I personally have only seen this stuff grow more and more in someone's head if it doesn't get out. Roy calls it the athlete's foot of the brain. It only grows in dark places. So I don't know what else to say other than if it's not a big deal, then don't do it. Don't share it. But if it is really bothering you, then at least to someone, you'll say as much as you can and then you'll move on or do your prayer or whatever. Uh, I want to end with how ill I am. And for the years in the program, it, over the years, it's gotten better. If I even got on my knees with a group of people to do the third step, sometimes I'd be, feel the beginning of arousal. And I would call my sponsor to say it to him, and he'd say, Harvey, naturally... You're an intimacy cripple. You don't know how to deal with intimacy. It will immediately go to your pelvis. So what happens is when someone's sharing with us, it's a very intimate thing when you share your fantasies. And it's very uncomfortable for people like me who are love cripples to deal with it. And so we kind of practice getting into it and just don't force anything. 
This program, you wear this program not like a straitjacket, but as a loose coat. And there are no experts in this program. We're just people who share our experience, strength, and hope. That's all we got. We're other drunks. Okay? Thank you. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.